Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi everyone, it's Stu here, your dulcet-toned podcast host. Are you tired of ads interrupting your favourite true crime podcast? British Murders, of course. I mean, who needs a 60-second detour when you're in the midst of an immensely well-told story? The irony of this being an ad isn't lost on me, but I wanted to let you know that you can listen to British Murders completely ad-free by signing up for a Patreon membership. For as little as £3 per month, you'll get early access to ad-free episodes as well as a heap of other benefits. I've got a fair few bonus episodes you can sink your teeth into, and every Monday I drop a new episode of the British Murders Weekly Journal. If you enjoy exclusive giveaways, my Patreon has those too. Head to patreon.com slash britishmurders and choose either my OBE or KBE slash DBE tier to rid yourself of those pesky adverts. Plus, you'll be helping support your favourite podcast so that I can offer you even more content going forward. I'd say that I'll shut up now, but you've got the rest of the episode to listen to. Back to you, Stu. This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Crime Podcast. Right, there we go. Dr. Kerry Nixon, welcome to the show. Thank you for giving me your time. How are you? We've just been having a chat about vitamins. <laughs> I'm good, thank you. I'm busy, but I'm good. Busy, yeah. Busy in your gym gear. We love to see it. For anyone that doesn't know, I'm going to go through what you are, as okay. in c- career-wise, what you're known for. And this is based on your website, so if anything's wrong, you need to update <laughs> it. So you are a consultant forensic psychologist. Yes. Director of Nixon Consultants Limited. Also a director of Am I saying this right? Savera? Savera? Savera. Oh, actually, I need to update that. I'm still, I'm no longer a director of Savera purely because uh, time, but I'm still very much uh, linked to Savera. I do talks for them um, and see the the founder and director, Afra, all the time. So I'm sure she won't mind that mention. (laughs) Unofficial director, let's change that term. (laughs) So you're chartered by the British Psychological Society. You have a PhD in forensic psychology, master's degree in forensic and investigative psychology, and the one that started it all, I guess, Bachelor of Science in Applied Psychology. Mm-hmm. So psychology is something you're clearly passionate about. How did that passion? <laughs> how did that come about? Is that something you're into from a young age? Do you know what? I've I've answered this question a few times, and it's always really interesting because, in one way. It looked like I, I didn't get interested until psychology until later. So actually, when I was doing my A-levels at school, um, all I wanted to be was an actress. Well, initially, all I wanted to be was Kate Aidy. I don't know if you know who Kate Aidy is. That's over my head. I'm sorry. So that shows my age <laughs> and shows your age. So Kate Aidy was like John Simpson. He's another one. No, so these were uh, war correspondents for the BBC. 
Okay. And back covering like the Iraq war and all that kind of stuff in the, in the nineties. And so she would be on our screens like with bombs going off around her. And I thought that was the best job ever. So I wanted to be Kate Aidy. Then I wanted to be an actress. So I was doing a lot of kind of, um, kind of theater productions. I was studying, I did theater studies as one of my A-levels. Um, and I went down to Lambda in London and I was on the, I, well, that's what I wanted to do. Um, but then I realized that I couldn't afford to live in London. So started to study drama and didn't actually like that. And that's when I changed to study psychology and how that, that came about. Once I left drama school, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So this was about the age of about 19. And I kind of, I watched this program. It's a bizarre story, but I was watching, um, Oh God, what's her name? The famous, uh, oh my goodness, what's her name? She's really famous in America. She does a talk shows, Oprah Winfrey. Oh yeah. Um, I was watching her and she was talking about career changes. And somebody said, think about what you really like doing as a child. And I was like, I don't know what I like doing as a child. I like talking. But then I remembered, I always had a fascination in what made kind of innocent little babies turn into murderers. To the point where I'd made my mom buy, subscribe me to this magazine called Murder in Mind at the age of 10. Wow. Okay. So I was reading about serial killers at the age of like 10. Um, and I was fascinated. So when that, that's a very long answer to a very short question, but I kind of wasn't heading to be a psychologist. But when I look back, my interest in forensic psychology, even though I didn't realize at the time it was forensic psychology, started when I was actually a child. And I suppose if I'd known, nobody really knew about forensic psychology then, not like it is now. So I suppose if I'd known about forensic psychology at that age, I probably wouldn't have gone into all those other things that I was interested in, because I obviously had that interest from such a young age in what made somebody a murderer. Um, so I kind of came full circle and that's when I thought about that and looked into what kind of degree I would need to do that to be a, at the time I called it criminal psychologist. And that's how that, that journey started. So then I applied for, for university to study psychology. So I always tell people my journey is a bit like Spaghetti Junction. There was never a clear route. Okay. Just before, <laughs> I've got a question relating to what you've said about your childhood there, but Regarding applying for that course, what was the entry requirements for that? Uh, A-levels. So I needed to have, I can't remember what actually A-levels I needed, but I was lucky enough to have them. I did quite well in my A-levels. I think I got two A's and a B. Um, so I was lucky enough that I could just apply and go in. But if somebody didn't have A-levels, you know, there'd be things like access courses and different mm -hmm. ways, but you would need... A levels or an equivalent to get into university to study, but you don't need anything specific. Like you don't need maths or anything. It's just right. nowadays they do psychology A level. They didn't when I was younger, but that's not even a requirement to do psychology. You don't have to do an, a psychology A level to study psychology at university. Okay, so you're ten years old when you get this magazine subscription. It's pretty young. I've got a daughter that's just turned five. She kind of knows what death is you know, lost grandparents and stuff like that. 
at what point should we start teaching children about things like murder? Because it's quite a heavy subject. The true crime documentaries and stuff are normally 18 plus. It can get quite graphic. When should we start teaching kids about this? That's a really, really good question. Um, my daughter's probably a little bit more aware because she's got a forensic psychologist as a mum. So, you Makes know, sense. some of the things that she hears, she's just like, yeah, whatever. Um I was doing a talk at her school. She's 11, so she's still at primary school, and um, about my career. And I said to the head teacher, so should I go into the whole serial killer thing? And that she's like, no. no. You know, some kids might not be up for that. Um, interestingly, most kids were coming over saying, have you ever met a serial killer? So mm-hmm. yeah, they are aware, a lot of them. Um, okay, my answer is, I think with every subject, it should be age appropriate, build on things slowly, slowly. So, of course, you don't want to scare a child. But my daughter from the age of she would have since she was outside of my care. So going to nursery, we do the dancing dinosaur advert, DNH, the NSPCC, where it's it's kind of it's called um, the pants song. And it's basically a, a dancing dinosaur that's talking about what's in my pants is belongs to me. And it's basically. Okay about consent and only trusted people and what you're doing there is in a very very innocent way teaching young children that their body isn't to be touched by anybody other than you know the person that they feel protected and close to because you don't want to scare a child that young and then as they get a little bit older you give them more information because unfortunately I know from working with those people that offenders prey on vulnerable and innocent children and if a child knows that you know to say no and get help then they're going to be a little bit safer because often that's the kind of tactics that sex offenders will will use so I'm all for making children aware but in a way not to scare them so little bits of information. And then as they get older, so my daughter, I'm already starting to talk in more detail about consent now, now that she's going into senior school. So she now is aware, she's now aware of murder. She's aware of people being assaulted because she's going to senior school. And yeah. she she has to be aware of those things now. Do you think she comprehends it though? She can be aware of murder means this person kills this person. Do you think she can grasp the concept? Because it is quite a hard thing to get hold of at such a young age, probably. Yeah. And again, I suppose she's got a little bit more awareness having me as a mother. Um, I, 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 what age did you say your daughter was? Five? Five, yeah. You see a huge emotional growth spurt in year six. Makes sense. So, when they and you really see them getting ready for senior school, it's unbelievable. You just see them physically change in appearance and emotionally, they all get ready for that transition to senior school. And of course, at that point, that's when they might be getting the bus to school, they might be walking to the bus stop. They're going to be then in the world where unfortunately horrible things can happen. And I think that's the point that they start to understand it a little bit more. But still, I mean, she doesn't know the, some of the graphic stuff, you know. She knows that people kills people, but she still doesn't know. You know, we I've not discussed rape with her in 
that extent. She knows about consent. I've said things like if somebody tried to force you to, if they tried to touch you and you don't want to be touched. I've now started to talk of things about if a boyfriend ever tried to force you to kiss him or even make you feel guilty about not kissing him. But I haven't kind of addressed the whole rape issue yet because I think that's that would be too much for her at her age. But that will have to come in the next few years, unfortunately. Yeah, incremental steps, like you say. I just think about, like, I grew up in the 90s, right? And it used to be after school, you'd go home and at the bottom of our street was a massive wooded area and it was huge. And we would disappear for, what, five hours and you'd only come back when your mum's leaning out the door shouting you for tea, which is just such a far cry from what goes on now. At what point do you think that changed? Because there were still bad people in the 90s and arguably some of the worst people we've had were in the 90s, the 80s. Why has that changed, do you think? Awareness, social media, crime programs. Look at what we watch now. So, you know, in the 80s and the 90s, if there was a murderer operating down south, yes, we'd get some coverage on TV, but it wasn't the saturation of it like we have now, the fear, you know, because, yes, everybody's interested in it, but it also does generate fear. Um, so I think the fear factor has really kind of impacted how we are with our children. But I think, I think as well, it's, it's not just whether they're going to be, you know, killed. I think even things like, look at how many cars are on the road now compared to what, when, when you were saying about that, I was the same. I'd go out and I was, could go out and play with my friends and come back. And there was, but there was less risk generally in terms of cars and everything. But as you said, in terms of murders, yeah, they were still there. They were still operating. But I don't think we had the same knowledge and I don't think we had the same fear. Hmm. Yeah. And I think it's a shame, you know, because I do think, I really do think it's one of the factors of why sometimes it's harder to kind of teach kids resilience now because, you know, I've got examples I was talking to somebody recently and I, about resilience and about how the way that we were brought up, probably we were, we learned resilience more. Whereas I remember, you know, me and my friends and we got our head stuck in a railing and like, what we're going to do, we shouldn't have been in this place. If we get found here, we're going to be in loads of trouble. Oh my God, what are we going to do? You know, and having to get a, solve that problem and get out of it. And we did. That's it's a lesson, isn't it? It's not a very great, it's not a good lesson. You don't want that, but actually it is. And then you've adapted and you've learned. But we now, as parents, protect our children from those experiences because we're scared of what can happen, which means that they need us to help and problem solve more. Is there an argument for parents nowadays, myself included? <laughs> being too protective of our children, not allowing them to be kids and learn those lessons? I think they're, they're yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I'm guilty of it myself. Um, but yeah, definitely. I think we do. And then there's the extreme. So there's protective parenting and then there's helicopter parenting and the mm. overprotective. And that's that's actually quite damaging. Yeah. You know, there's also there's, people there's, that don't give a shit at all. And then there's people who don't give a shit. On the other side of it. And then also worse than that, 
there's obviously the abusive and neglectful parenting. Yeah. Then people who don't give a shit, then kind of the average protective parent. And then you get into the kind of more pathological where it's not letting children do anything. And that that's really damaging as well. Yeah, I agree. You have to learn sometimes through doing bad stuff. As long yeah. as it's not saying break a, break a crime, but we've all, you know, petty things and stuff you shouldn't be doing, going on to building sites, little things like that, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Little things like that. And and also I think with friendships, mm. you know, you're starting, you have to let them kind of go, well, what how are you going to deal with that? Not immediately go in as the parent, you know, demanding that this is sorted out, you know, letting them socially start to understand those interactions and how they're going to work them out. It's preparing them for the world, isn't it? I suppose, thinking if you don't stand up for yourself, I will always be there to jump in. Mm-hmm. I, I always say to my daughter, you, you need to have a bit more about you. I don't think she understands what I mean. Maybe I'm just being you a bit... You will do, though, and that's like that's what you're saying, though. It's like the little small steps. Yeah. You, you know, know? When they come home and they say, oh, so-and-so won't let me play with them, and I just say, just, fucking do, just play with them then. Just get yourself stuck in. But, you know, <laughs> she'll get there. If we bring it back to forensic psychology, then pretend I'm an absolute layman. So can you explain briefly what a forensic psychologist does, how it relates to the field of not only true crime, but policing and murder cases, active investigations? Okay, so forensic psychology is like psychology, the study of human behavior. Um, Forensic obviously means that forensic psychologists as compared to General psychologists will work with the offending population. So those that have committed offences. The majority of forensic psychologists, you will find them working within the criminal justice system, usually in prisons. So you have prison psychologists that will work on offending programmes. So things like anger management, sex offender work, enhanced thinking skills, changing how offenders think and act and behave, also doing assessments. So assessments for uh, parole, uh, sentencing, risk. So is this person still a risk to society? Things like that. Uh, You'll also find them within hospitals, so secure hospitals, places like Ashworth and Broadmoor. And then there's lots of other hospitals around the country that are low secure and medium secure hospitals. Um, so similar to Ashworth and Broadmoor, but less secure. And you'll find forensic psychologists work <laughs> there, and the same kinds of things as a prison psychologist. They will assess and treat offenders in their care. Uh, you will find forensic psychologists who are not practitioners, so they will be academic psychologists, where they will do research. So they will do research on rape, murder, all different manner of things within the kind of criminal justice arena. Um, And they will often give advice to the police and and different organisations. You then have forensic psychologists that will work as consultants, consultants to the court. So I work as an expert witness as well. So that will be usually family or criminal court sometimes civil court as well, for accidents, road accidents, things like that, but generally family and criminal. So if it's family, I do a lot of work because one of my areas is in domestic abuse and trauma. So I will assess 
It could be uh, a family where a child is living in a situation of domestic abuse, violence, alcohol, mental health, and I will assess the parents, sometimes the child, and give then a report to the, the family court. Or criminal, it will be often somebody is on trial for murder or a violent crime, and I'll be asked to do a risk assessment or a mental health assessment of that offender. Um, and then uh, you also get sometimes police, uh, forensic psychologists working with the police, and this will be where it's on investigations. Now, there's not many psychologists that actually work full time for the police as a forensic psychologist. They might work as crime analysts, uh, as researchers, but often the police will draw on support from forensic psychologists. I did work as a full time forensic psychologist for a while with Merseyside Police, which was quite a unique position at the time. Um, but generally, you'll find forensic psychologists giving advice to the police um, when they're working on certain investigations. I was reading about your time at Merseyside Police. It said you were training constabularies in domestic abuse awareness mm-hmm. and how to how to interview potential domestic abuse perpetrators as well as the people being abused. You mentioned doing assessments in those situations mm-hmm. with children as well. What would a typical assessment look like? Let's start with let's say a woman who is suspected of being abused by a partner. Okay. And you're tasked with assessing that situation. How do you go about that? What does it look like? Okay. Well, so there's, there'll be lots of different potential assessments that you could do. It depends on, and it's very, very important when you work as an expert witness, you have to get a set of instructions from the solicitor. So your job is to work for the court. So you don't give you're not biased to whoever is uh, instructing you. It could be the defense, the prosecution, the local authority, whoever it is that's instructing you, and you'll get a clear set of instructions. Now that could be that you're looking at the risk. So there you would do a domestic abuse risk assessment of how risky is this situation. Um, Or it could be that they're asking about the impact on the child. So then if you're doing that, you'd be looking at working with the child and doing things like looking at the trauma and how they're being traumatized by the situation. So it all depends on what you're being asked to do. There's lots of different types of assessments that you can do depending on the set of instructions. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now back to the story. How difficult is it then to, to get to the outcome of that risk assessment because i imagine if you're speaking to the the suspect there's going to be a lot of fibbing going on and mm-hmm. if you're speaking to the person being abused there might be a lot of victim blaming for themselves excusing the behavior so mm-hmm. how difficult and is sometimes it sometimes also lying as well because yeah. they might not want to admit that there's abuse going on if they want to stay in the relationship so i've worked on many cases where the victim is saying that they haven't been victimized because they don't want to leave the perpetrator, but they're scared that the child is going to be removed. <laughs> so there's, there's lots of different, lots of different situations. And basically in those kinds of cases, I get access to everything. So I get a, what we call a bundle, which is everything possible. So it's social workers reports, medical records, school reports, observations of police officers that have attended scenes, police information. I've even had things like video footage, if the police video footage when they've arrived at scenes. Um, 
previous convictions, PNC records. I will interview the victim and the perpetrator and potentially the children as well. And if I use something called the SARA risk assessment, which is a domestic abuse risk assessment that you use, you're interviewing the victim and the perpetrator and potentially witnesses, plus you've got all that documentation. So I've just completed a, an assessment recently and, you know, the amount of information, it's like 600 pages of information that I go through in addition to the interviews. Does that affect your, I use the word bias cautiously because I don't want to think that you would go in already thinking, you know, I know what you've done kind of thing to jeopardize your assessment, but is it, it must be quite difficult to go in knowing what you know and speaking to you know the suspect, let's say, knowing what they've been seen to do on camera or on audio calls or whatever, to interview them on a professional basis, no? Well, you've obviously you you generate a picture of what has happened, but there's often that I've read all the information, and then you you meet the person and you do a, a maybe a mental health assessment, and it doesn't change that actually it might be very apparent that they've still done what. Is they're being accused of if it's a criminal case. But actually by doing a full clinical interview with them, you, you learn about their background. So it's all those different factors. So it might not be that you're trying to say that they didn't do it, but actually this is the formulation. This is why these are the factors that we need to consider and, and look at. So determining what happens then, not necessarily getting the person off if it's a criminal case, but understanding why. So for example, uh, cognitive assessments are really important. So there's often murderers who have done something, but they might have, you know, such a low IQ that actually they're functioning more like a, a child age than an adult age. And that's a factor that needs to be taken into consideration in the court because they may need help in the court to understand the proceedings. So there's so many factors. There's so many different elements to this. Is there a case, without obviously naming names, going into too much detail, is there a case that has stuck with you regarding domestic abuse? Many. (laughs) Um, Yeah, many. Um... What's the most shocking the most shocking is a case that where I I was working with the offender post um, sentence, so they were incarcerated, um, and the extent of the domestic abuse it ended in murder of of his wife, um, but the abuse to the children in that case as well was horrific, and the abuse to her leading up to him killing her was probably one of the worst I've ever come across. And I've worked on so many, unfortunately, so many awful cases of domestic abuse, but the level of violence and the level of control and emotional abuse and abuse to the children and the things and abuse to the pets. And, you know, he, he would kill the family pets in front of the children as punishments. And I mean, it was just, every element of domestic abuse you can consider. And he he was such a horrible, horrible man. What effect does it have on you dealing with these kind of people mentally? Um, I always say 
there's certain jobs people I think can do and certain jobs you can't. Like I, I've struggled with, I take it home. I seem to take it home more when I work with victims. I find it harder to switch off then than I do when I'm working with the offender. I can switch off easier with the offender generally. Um, whereas with victims, I take that home more. So now the work that I do now, because I work with a lot of victims now, I find that sometimes harder to switch off from. Um, with offenders, yeah, no, I, I was I was able to switch off quite well. Working on when I used to work, I worked on a personality disorder unit that you can get burnt out like any other frontline job, really, that the level of work, the things that you're listening to, the the number of incidents on a, on a daily basis, you know, you get burnt, you can get burnt out. And that has that's an impact. How do you recognize that? So is, is there something that you think, hang on a minute, I need to take some time out. And when you do recognize that, how do you manage that? How do you unwind? Is it just a case of taking time off? With burnout, and I work with a lot of police officers who've got burnt out, uh, uh, burning out, and it's really important to recognize, recognize those signs before you get to actual proper full-blown burnout. Because full-blown burnout, it, it's almost like everything just stops. I've luckily not got to that point in my career, but I've seen people where physically they become very, very unwell or mentally they just, they stop. They, they just have to walk out. They've got nothing else to give. But the stages before that, you start to feel that you're not enjoying your work the same. You're not having the empathy that you should have. Um, unable to switch off, taking your work home with you, starting to feel quite uh, fatigued, low mood, anxious. You know, many of the signs of, of, of general kind of mentally not being well, um, but also starting to dislike your work mm. is, is a real big indicator that something needs to change. And yeah, it's often taking a, a break, um, maybe changing, if you can, the role and slightly change. So I've, in my career, you know, I've, I've gone from working with the police, working in hospitals, working in, you know, I've, now I'm in private practice and I do bits. So I, I, I've been lucky that I can kind of slightly alter my job that keeps me maintained and keeps me focused if I'd stayed in in one of those for my whole career I probably would have completely burnt out so were those moves then just coincidental it's not a case of you felt you were gonna reach that boiling point and then you've moved on yeah most of the time it, do you know what I think I just always knew that there was time there's been there's been times that I've started to fit me feel unhappy in the role the only time, though, I really, really hated, and I should never have, I did have a time where I was an academic, where I worked in universities. I hated that. I was so unhappy, but that's because I'm a practitioner at heart. I like doing, I like, I like different things. I like my days to be different. Um, and I just, it was a really bad, bad, I was a really bad academic. I was like, it was not for me. <laughs> and I'm not a complete finisher when it comes to uh, research, like, 
the idea is exciting and the collecting the data is exciting, writing up papers. I was bloody useless at it, really was. <laughs> I think sometimes being practical rather than whatever the opposite of that is, just telling someone something, <laughs> showing them is better, I think. Yeah. But looking looking at what you've done as far as highlighting these issues and talking about your career, you've made quite a few appearances on TV and radio. Mm-hmm. Been on Sky News, BBC Five Live, This Morning, many different documentaries and radio shows and stuff. How does it feel when you get the call and think, do you want to do you want to come on this morning tomorrow and talk about <laughs> whatever? How's that feel? I I enjoy it. I'll be honest. And it's interesting, isn't it, when I told you about my early career and I was obviously wanting to be an actress and I went to drama school. Again, yep. it's really interesting that in terms of that, again, it's it's come full circle that I do quite a lot of media work now. And I, I, I admit I love this morning, it's, I always love doing that. You go and get your makeup done. And uh, it's like, a, you know, it's a different, it's exciting. Um, in relation to all the other stuff, I think uh, some psychologists and some forensic psychologists will stay away from it. And that's fine. I understand why, you know, because you have got to be careful sometimes in terms of making sure that something's not sensationalist. However, I get lots of messages from the families of murder victims that we've covered the, the, the stories of and thanking me for talking about it. And that they're happy that their loved one story is remaining in the news and helping other people. Mm-hmm. So I think for those reasons, it can be really beneficial. It can be really, a lot of people that I've worked with who have lost people to murder, they want that somebody, particularly when it's been domestic abuse related, one of the main things that they all say is they want their story to at least help one person escape a relationship like that so I think it can be really used for good and and that's what I enjoy that element of it as well you ever experienced the opposite of that where families have reached out saying we actually every time we hear about it in the media it brings back all those memories so have you heard people saying we would prefer you not to talk about the case I personally haven't um no, I know I have worked with people that have said I would never want my story discussed, but I've been working with them in a different way. Um, and I think reputable, um, maybe I've just been lucky, but reputable production companies generally want to have the family on board. Um, and I, I, I don't think I've been involved in anything where the family have been really unhappy. Um, I don't know. Maybe I have. I don't know. But I've not had any feedback to suggest that. That's fair enough. I I know that I I mean, obviously, I've worked with people from a from a psychological point of view and they know that I've been and they say, you'd never talk about me, would you? And I was like, no, was that that rules it out anyway, because I have been approached to work on certain cases and I've had to say no, because I know that case from a professional point of view. And that's unethical. So I would never talk about some a case that I've directly worked with that person. Yeah. Is there ever a time when, let's say you're just sitting down watching your tea and you hear a story on the news and you think, 
my phone's going to ring in a minute. They're going to want me to talk about this. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> that must be so bizarre. I'm laughing about it, not because the, the story is funny, but I just, I picture you sitting there eating your tea and watching the news going, oh my God, that's awful. And then the next thing your phone's buzzing. Yeah, that happens all the time, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> so you enjoy going on this morning. And I did. How do you enjoy doing all the, the true crime documentaries and stuff? Because it seems weird, the act of filming something like that, you know, where you sort of, talking you see all the talking heads talking off camera to someone else you've done those right yeah yeah what's that like I know you wanted to be an actress and stuff and it's kind of maybe a bit natural to you but for someone who was doing that for the first time what can you expect it must be a bizarre thing to know that a camera's there but to talk to someone there about it it is really tricky it is and I it- I always say you have to get warmed up the first kind of 10 minutes. You feel a bit funny and then you get into it. Um, they usually have a set of questions that they, you know, they want to ask. Sometimes you've had sight of them before. Sometimes you haven't. Um, I think the only thing, one of the the best ones I've ever worked on was the first one, actually. And it's one that's really always going to remain close to my heart, which was Britain's Darkest Taboos. Mm-hmm. I worked on three three series of that. Um, and what was great about that one, I think, is that they really went into detail from the family's perspective. All the families were on board of those cases. And it was very much the story of then the family and how they got through that as well as the case. And they did it really sensitively. And also they didn't have sometimes my only criticism of some of the uh, crime documentaries now is that it's almost too many talking heads. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes when you just be able to kind of talk in depth about a case, I really enjoy that. Yeah. Sometimes I find you'll see a talking head and then you'll see the subtitle of, of who that person is. And I almost kind of, it could be something as simple as being a podcast host, or it could be a journalist. And you think, it's great to hear their opinion, but I'd much rather hear from, say, the lead detective or the pathologist or someone from the family, you know, someone who actually worked on the case. Personal preference. I get why they do it. But, yeah, it can be a little bit too yeah. much uh, quantity over quality, as it were. Absolutely. And, you know, it's it's difficult often because the police, the lead detectives, if they're still working, often won't be allowed to talk about it. Mm -hmm. That's why you'll see that a lot of ex-senior investigating officers will be the talking heads. Right. Actually, if you're still a a senior investigating officer, there'll be limitations of what media work you can do. Even if it's on historic cases, is that... Is that how it works? Yeah. It's it's a case-by-case and force-by-force. Different forces have different policies. So some will allow it, some won't. And different chief constables. I've worked with chief constables that are happy for some officers to work. I've worked with others that it's been a blanket. No, it doesn't happen. So it 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 varies. It makes sense to me. Obviously, they still do Politics. the media. That's different. They'll still do the interviews for the media when current cases. Yeah, that, yeah. That's, they have to do that. That's expected. That's media yeah. engagement on current cases. Yeah, of course. You mentioned that when you started your psychology journey, there was quite limited access courses at A-level wasn't a thing back then. 
How do you think psychology and specifically forensic psychology has evolved from when you started to where it's at now? Oh, wow. It's just exploded. You know, back in the day, you, as I said, there was no psychology A-level and there was no forensic psychology degree. It was psychology. Mm-hmm. And then there might have been one module on forensic psychology. And they would be limited numbers. Now, there's not only more people studying psychology, but there's now forensic psychology degrees. And they are, I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds, like three, 400 students studying on those courses. I personally still always give advice to students. If you want to be a forensic psychologist, still do an undergraduate psychology degree, not forensic. I think specializing too early is never a good thing. I think you should get your breadth of knowledge about psychology and then specialize. Same with medicine. You know, you don't go and study to be a surgeon straight away. (laughs) You need to understand the whole body and how it works and then specialize. And it's the same with psychology. I think you need to understand psychology. You need to understand about child development, attachment, perception, memory, you know, all the things that can be quite boring studying in first and second year psychology, I'll be honest, but actually they're crucial at then understanding if you're going to be doing police interviewing later on, all those elements of cognitive psychology that you learned in your first and second years of psychology are important to understand that. Hmm. So I, I think that's my advice to any student is do your psychology and specialize as you go through. You took a, my next question out of my mouth there by answering that. <laughs> Thanks for that. My next question after that would be, if you could go back in time and give yourself a piece of advice, what would that be? Because you took general psychology, so that you can't say that one. That's not a, a get out free, get out of jail free card. You know what? I, do, I, I, I ask myself that all the time and I love my job. So... Part of me thinks, well, yes, I would do it again and be a psychologist and do it slightly different. So I'll give you that answer in a minute. But the other thing that I've, and I still am fascinated now, whenever I've been to a post-mortem and I've been to a few, I am fascinated by it. So I always think, would I have been a forensic pathologist instead Mm. if I could go back? Um, That's that's the thing that I think, "Hmm, maybe I would have been a forensic pathologist because it fascinates me, absolutely fascinates me. Um, But if I was going to be a a forensic psychologist and I'd go back to give my advice, it's the advice that I'm giving. I've got somebody working with me at the moment. She's um, studying, she's starting her master's (laughs) and going to study, go through to do a chartership forensic psychologist. And she's doing work experience with me at the moment. She's amazing. And the advice that I'm giving her is try to take more of a direct direct route than I did because I could have got to where I am sooner if I'd kept on the path that I wanted to go originally. And then I did this mm-hmm. and I, that's, that's the advice that I would give myself if I could go back after. So if we're, if we're saying that I'd already studied psychology, yeah. so I'm sticking with that job. I would say, right, stay on this path. Don't go there. Stay here and get to where I am now a bit quicker. Okay. I was going to say, because when you were 
describing that to me, I was like, but you've just said, don't sort of niche down on your course, go do the general. But what you're saying is do that for a background and overview. And then when you've picked your field, just go straight for that, right? Yes. Yeah. When I say start general, I mean like psychology, don't go straight into forensic psychology. Yeah. However, I, when I was at uni, I wanted to be a forensic clinical psychologist and I was going to do my clinical course, but I then got really interested in all the police work. So I did forensic and investigative psychology and ended up working with the police. Great, loved it, great time. Even considered joining the police at one point. I was working with the Met because I was having such a great time. So I kind of did off doing lots of different things there and didn't keep on the path of forensic clinical. Mm-hmm. Then I ended up doing a bit of academia for a few years, hated that. And eventually when I came back to what I love doing, which was working with offenders, which is what I started doing right back at the beginning, I should have stuck on that, that path. Not yeah. Kerry, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much for your time. I could probably chat about this for hours, but I know you're a very busy woman. Oh, it's so, fine. I'm, well, I'm, I'm doing fine for time. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll leave it there. Thanks for coming on. I hope everyone listening enjoyed that. You can check out Kerry at kerrynixon.com k-e-r-i nixon.com and that'll do us thank you Kerry thank you